We are going to continue our study through the kings. We're going to pick up King Solomon tonight. So we are effectively picking, um, for the first three weeks now, we are going to be taking on one of the major three kings of what's known as the United Kingdom. And then um, starting next week, we'll have to pick up some speed because the kings rise and fall rather quickly. Um, so we'll be covering more than one. But today or tonight, we'll be dealing specifically with King Solomon, um, a man whose story most of us probably know, but there's some really fascinating stuff um, as you read through the account of King Solomon's life and, and reign as king. Um, before we get started, let's go ahead and uh, open up in prayer, and then we will hit our texts. Father, we are grateful um, each week that we get to come together as a body of believers and, and pour over your word, pour over the fact that you revealed yourself to us. May we never take that lightly. May we never take it um, lightly that we have the privilege of knowing you and, uh, and engaging with you in your scriptures. I pray that you would speak through the text tonight, speak to us, um, not so much about Solomon, but about you. And I pray that as we, as we walk through this, we will learn something of our own history and learn even more about the one that is sovereign over all history. Father, we're grateful for our time together. Pray that you would be here with us tonight, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, Every time I teach, I find a reason to draw a timeline or a map. It's just something I like to do. Um, and this is going to help us. I, I want to start, before we hit our notes, I want to start with the question, why study the kings of Israel? Especially after Solomon, it might seem as though we're just dealing with some rather obscure guys who don't um, offer a lot of significance to those of us that follow Jesus. I would say that is a short-sighted um, uh, assumption if, if, you, if you kind of think that way. But more than that, I think that we need to, to study the kings for a number of reasons. The first being, I totally, uh, and, and without like being weird, view Israel's history as my history. For those of us that follow Jesus, we are, um, we are I view ourselves as post-cross Israel. And therefore, our history, much like I think it's valuable as an American to have a working understanding of American history and our relationships to other nations and our relationships within our own nation, I think as a Christian, it's important to understand our history. And we have here, um, these aren't the only historical books, but we have six major, major historical books that recount the story of Israel. And in some ways, I would argue, if you don't know the story of Israel, it's hard to deal with what Jesus actually came to do. Jesus comes in reference to a problem that Israel is dealing with. So we need to understand our history. And so I have this, these are, if you like to memorize dates, don't think you have to, but um, after um, the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt in the Exodus, roughly 1444 to 1446 BC, somewhere in there, these I would say are the five major, major dates in the history of Israel before we get into the New Testament. Um, in, at 1050, roughly, so these are all rough estimates, but at 1050, Saul is anointed the first king of Israel. 
He is, you recall in 1 Samuel, you have the nation requesting a king like the other nations. And, and Samuel, God sends Samuel, God selects Saul, sends Samuel and anoints Saul, the first king of Israel. Then we have David, and then we have Solomon, which we'll deal with tonight. And then about um, 100 and, about 100-ish years, so this is another rough figure, about 930 B.C., you have the nation split which is going to be next week, which we'll actually end with tonight. The nation splits. Um, and by the way, if you think that we had a nasty civil war four years, the Israelites had a 50-year civil war, and it was really quite nasty. So the nation splits into north and south, and then in 722 B.C., the 10 northern tribes um, are conquered by the Assyrian army, and they are taken off as captives, and then they intermarry and kind of water down the bloodlines. And then in 586, the south, with Jerusalem and the temple, it falls to the Babylonians who come in and take it into captivity. Now, Babylon is shortly thereafter conquered by the Persian Empire, and then we have um, most of our historical books end with the account of Cyrus's edict, which is the king of the Persians who says, you need to go home and rebuild your temple. And the Israelites come home much smaller, much weaker, but they come back and they, are set, they set out to rebuild um, Jerusalem and the temple itself. So, just to kind of navigate, I'll show you where the books themselves deal with this material. Um, first and Second Samuel basically deal with Saul and David, and that's it. Samuel deals with the first two kings. And then First and Second Kings deals with Solomon all the way to the edict uh, for coming down from Cyrus. So um, First and Second Kings deals with this very long time period. And so it makes sense that the book moves at kind of a breakneck pace, especially after Solomon. And then um, much like Samuel, you have First Chronicles here deals with Solomon and David. And then picking, or Saul and David, and then picking it up with Second Chronicles deals with the rest of the history. So these six books are where you can get this very, very crucial 500-year period of time and get the details on what's actually going on. So not only is it important to know our own history, but another good reason to study the kings is because it's in these, um, the accounts that we get from these six books it's here that you see a beautiful picture of God's character and his expectations of people that follow him. And you see that because he has the highest expectations for those who rule his people. You see God have um, the Davidic covenant. We, we studied that last week. That was 2 Samuel 7. He says, like, I have expectations. You have obligations to me. And if you will follow me, if you will live in line with my character, I will then bless you. It's a very conditional relationship. So we study the kings because it's important. It's our history. We study the kings because there we also learn a lot about God himself in terms of his expectations and our response. So that brings us down to our notes. We're going to deal with um, Solomon himself in kind of four major stages of his kingdom. But first, I want to see um, Solomon, like every king from this point forward, will be judged in comparison to how they measure up to David. David is the prototypical Israelite king. He had his flaws, of course he does. 
but he is considered by God himself and by the rest of the scriptures as the benchmark. This is the king that you are, like this is the one that set the standard. And so there are some who live like their father David or their ancestor David, and there are many, many more who never live up to the standard set by David. And here are um, a number of things that David brings to kind of the qualifications of a king for God's people. Um, Basically, from David's reign, we clearly see that the monarchy is first not a right. You will see those who elect people to be kings or those who will take the throne by power. This is never a good thing in the sight of God. Kings, according to God's way, are anointed by his prophets. They are selected by God. This is not a hereditary thing. This isn't a lineage type thing. God promises that to David because God will anoint his king every time. And when there are exceptions, their punishments follow. It's not a right, but it is a God-given position with stipulations attached, articulated in the Davidic covenant, and you can write in 2 Samuel 7 there. Among others, the primary qualities of a God-honoring king are, first and foremost, every single time, obedience to the Mosaic law. Specifically, if I want to distill down the Mosaic law to a principle, monotheism. The, the kings, when they are punished, when they are judged, and when the kings are judged, the nation is judged as a result as well. It is far and away, most often because they've chased after other gods. To be a monotheistic Yahweh-worshiping king is qualification number one. Second is faithfulness and trust in the sovereignty of Yahweh. A good Israelite king must know that he is not the supreme monarch. He is he is ruling on behalf of Yahweh. This is the charge, after all, given to Adam in the garden, that he is to, to rule on God's behalf. David understood this. There are times whenever he, he, gets boast, he, he gets a little prideful when he decides to number his army, but we don't know. I mean, it says that both Satan and God incited him to number his army. Um, that's a, that's a, a moment of pride in David's life, and, and that is not that is not living out this faithfulness and trust in the, in the sovereignty of God himself. Three, and this is a very, very important one. They are a godly king is to model leadership that directs the nation towards God. I think we, we kind of, um, as we read the New Testament, we, we believe that the, the preeminent leader in the nation is the high priest. That was only a very recent development by the time Jesus comes on the scene. That actually started to become the case when they come back from exile and they never have a powerful king again. They have governors. They never have a powerful monarch. And so the high priest kind of slips into being the most powerful man in the country. But all along, it is the king who's supposed to lead the people to God. It is the king who's supposed to instill in the nation a worshipful heart that, that only worships God himself. It's actually the king we'll see that's supposed to tear down the high places of pagan worship. The high priest is almost, uh, is very seldom mentioned in terms of prominence until the nation comes back and they don't have kings anymore. And then finally, a godly king um, is measured by his submission to the true prophets of God. If I could say in terms of godly power in the nation, the, the most powerful man in the nation of Israel was technically the prophet. Now, the king would have an army at his disposal. He would have very, very deep coffers. He would have a big, luxurious palace. He would have all this political clout. But the man who is viewed as the one who is almost always right is the prophet. 
And he is the one that when he speaks, kings are judged by whether or not they listen to him. So when Nathan walks in and rebukes one of the, what at that time is probably the most powerful man in the world, he is not met with a counter rebuke. He is met with a broken king who says, you're right. I did take that which wasn't mine. And David repents. He listens to the true prophets of God. So these are four things that kings ought to do. And these are four things that Solomon will initially do well and then fail to do at the end. And you'll see some very serious judgment. In fact, a number of these significant events can be traced back to the sin of Solomon himself. He sets into motion some events that color the rest of the scriptures. So let's jump down to Solomon's kingdom, and I've called this the tragedy of Israel, and you'll see as we come into um, the back half how we can actually read the text in kind of its micro form and then zoom out and read the Bible as a whole and see how these two things, how his, his kingdom fits into the overarching kingdom of God. First, the first major section of Solomon's rule is that he must come to power in the first place. So, um, his story is told from 1 Kings 1 all the way to 1 Kings 11 is when Solomon dies. Likewise, if you go to 2 Chronicles, you'll find it from 2 Chronicles 1 to 2 Chronicles 9. Basically the same story. We're going to be in 1 Kings tonight because it tells more of the story. There's very little that... Um, 2 Chronicles doesn't ignore much. It just kind of doesn't tell the story of, uh, of Solomon's initial rise to power, which is actually quite a fascinating story. So we open up here um, in 1 Kings 1. David is at this point dying. It says that he's a very old man. He cannot, no matter how much he bundles up, he can't keep warm. It is quite clear that the most powerful man in Israel is on his, uh, is on his deathbed. They even bring in a young lady to try to help him stay warm. It doesn't work. He is clearly going to die. Now, one of his sons um, sees here an opportunity, as is customary in kingly families. When the, when the man in charge is too weak to do anything about it, you'll start to have a bit of a power struggle between anyone else who could lay claim to the throne. David's oldest son at this point is Adonijah. And Adonijah says, I am going to become king. And he rallies a lot of political support. He gets, he gets David's most powerful military commander, Joab. And he gets David's second high priest, <laughs> Abiathar, which is in and of itself kind of one of David's sins that the Bible doesn't speak about a lot. But David elected a high priest, which is not a position that you can elect anyone to. The high priesthood is a family affair. It is, it is something that you kind of inherit in your lineage. And so there was a high priest named Zadok. And then David's like, ah, that was Saul's high priest. I'll, I'll pick a new one. And they'll just kind of co-high priest it for a while. And so you have Abiathar. Now, David's son, Adonijah, says, I'm going to take the most powerful military man and a man of, the, a man of God, a, a religious leader, and they are going to rally support for me, and they're going to anoint me king. And that's exactly what he does. And he, and he amasses quite a following. He's running through the streets with um, chariots and 50 men running in front of him. He's, he is having a kingly procession in the streets as David is upstairs in the palace dying. And David's totally unaware. His wife Bathsheba is totally unaware. And Nathan the prophet, remember, the most, technically the most powerful man in the nation, walks into Bathsheba's um, house or living quarters and says, have you not seen what's going on? Do you not understand what's going on? Your son, Solomon, the rightful heir to the throne, the one that David has promised the crown to, 
is, being, is in the dark while, uh, while Adonijah has all of his other brothers and the military commanders and the man from the religious leadership. He has made himself king. And Bathsheba's like, what? And so Nathan says, okay, here's what we're going to do. You go into David. You remind him of his promise. You, and if you go in and read some of the text, it's, in, it's incredible how there's a lot of subtle jabs at David's, um, like this is in many ways David's fault. There are three reasons that Adonijah is listed as feeling as though he has a right to the throne. He is one, David's oldest remaining son. Seems natural. He is, in a very Saul-like manner, very good looking. And then the third reason it gives is that David didn't, has never rebuked him for behaving this way. There is this implicit judgment on David for leading this way. And then in the way that Nathan tells Bathsheba to speak to David, he says, are you, so, are you O king, so unaware of what's going on in your own kingdom that you would let this happen? Bathsheba does. She is telling him, remember your promise to my son Solomon. Nathan comes in as a second witness, tells the same thing. And David musters his last little bit of strength. And he gets up and he goes out and he has the true high priest, Zadok. And here's the real important one, Nathan the prophet, anoint Solomon king. Now, Abiathar's over here. He's, having, he's just won the election. He's having his after party. They're, everything is loud. They're having their meal. And then they hear the trumpet sound. And they hear the people shout. And someone comes in and says, King David just anointed Solomon king. And all of Adonijah's supporters just scatter. They're like, this is bad news. A, David's still alive. And now there's a second king. And we are here with third in line. So they just scatter. And Adonijah runs in and just holds on to the Ark of the Covenant. Because it's kind of a, a place where um, literally you can plead, uh, plead with the king for mercy. He would never slaughter anyone holding on to the Ark of the Covenant. And David, um, David allows him to live. It doesn't, doesn't work very long, but David basically says, you will live for this. Uh, you will live, and, and so long as you will be faithful to my son Solomon. Solomon takes the throne, and then there's this incredible exchange between David and Solomon. Um, if you go to, I think it's at the end of, End of chapter one here. Oh, sorry, beginning of chapter two. These are David's parting instructions to Solomon. Um, and it's an, a very profound section. So first Kings two, starting in verse one. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And then he, he lists seven synonyms for God's law. It's a really beautiful passage. He says, this is how you show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimony as it is written in the law of Moses. That, so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that Yahweh may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, and here is the Davidic covenant. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, as I was kind of getting ready and going through these 11 chapters, I, so here is the first overt reference to the Davidic covenant. I was astounded at how much it is referred to again and again and again. There really is this covenantal language. If you will live this way, God will, I mean, think of the end of Deuteronomy. 
If you will follow me, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. And we will see in Israel's history the results of Solomon's obedience and disobedience, and more than anything, the overarching faithfulness of God. But here we have the Davidic covenant renewed. And the simple fact that Solomon takes the throne at all is the first installment of the Davidic covenant coming true. And Solomon sets the standard. This is the first son of David that is now rightful king over all Israel. And, it, and this is setting a paradigm that Jesus is going to fulfill. The prophets are going to talk about it. Isaiah 9 talks about it. Jeremiah 23 talks about it. If you go look at all these places, they'll reference a son of David. And all they have in mind is the fact that this passage of power took place. And they're saying and the, the Messiah will one day totally fulfill what the Davidic covenant is intended to do. But with Solomon, we have the first installment of the Davidic covenant. And then David gives some interesting instructions. He says, uh, to some degree, show, so he lists off Joab's sins. Joab has been shrewd. He's actually been in many ways more righteous than David, a little more discerning, but in other ways wicked, a murderer. And so David says, like I promised him amnesty, and then he just looks at but don't let his head, don't let his gray hairs go into the grave peacefully. Like David's dying words are, kill him. Um, Shimei, kill him. Um, and so first thing Solomon does is after he takes the throne, um, Adonijah, that, that scoundrel of an older brother who tried to take the throne, goes into Solomon's mom, Bathsheba, and says, hey, can I have Abishag, which was the girl that took care of David when David was dying? Basically, one of his wives, one of the women in his household. Can I have her as my wife? And Bathsheba's like, sure, why not? And Solomon says, why would you do that? Why would you give that wicked man something of the king's, that gives him something of a claim to the throne? If he all of a sudden has a wife from the royal household. And, and Solomon just says, okay. We gave you a shot. You at first tried to anoint yourself king, and we gave, yourself, we gave you some mercy there. But now you've done this clearly, and Joab is still involved. Clearly, you are still making a pull for the kingdom. And Solomon has his older brother executed. And then he has Joab executed. And then he tells Shimei, you can, you can live so long as you never leave my kingdom. And then in a very ironic twist, his slaves run away to the Philistines, and, and he follows them, and Solomon finds out, sends a man to kill him. You disobeyed me. And I, and I don't know how much I would read into this, but it's fascinating that when, when, when David himself was looking for amnesty and hiding from those threatening his life, he ran to the Philistines, and the one who chased after him was eventually judged. Don't know if there's much there, but I just thought that's an interesting little parallel. This, this rise to power as, as Adonijah is put down and as Solomon takes the throne and David gives him the charge to live out the Davidic covenant, we see a number of things here. Um, first and foremost, we see that the Davidic covenant is already being fulfilled. Very, very shortly after it's given, it is already being fulfilled. It establishes the messianic hope in the nation of Israel that one day a deliverer will truly come from the bloodline of David. And it also demonstrates the kind of the, the qualities of this Davidic ruler. He will rule in power, he will be righteous, and he will be kind. But 
emphasis on righteous, those who, um, who disobey the authority of the kingdom will not meet a, a, a very good end. And then finally, it tells us we already see God being faithful with his promise to David. He said, I will put your son will be on the throne and I will establish that throne forever. And we already see that starting to take place here with Solomon. Now we come to our second section here where we have one of the things that Solomon is probably most well known for is his wisdom. And so we come to Solomon the sage, um, chapters three and four of 1 Kings. You can go to 2 Chronicles 1. Um, the transfer of the kingdom from the section before is at the end of 1 Chronicles. And then 2 Chronicles opens up with um, Solomon and his request for wisdom. God himself appears to Solomon twice. And, and this is the first time. Um, look at how chapter 3 opens up. This is, this is an interesting line. Chapter 3, verse 1. So at the end of the last chapter, the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Then verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now kings and Israelites themselves are not supposed to intermarry with other nations. Kings really shouldn't. Because God says that when you do, you will chase after their gods. You will not remain loyal to me. Now, it's, it's unclear whether or not Solomon's heart is, is already lured away to the gods of Egypt. Because he says, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. This is interesting. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. It doesn't seem as though Solomon is going after other gods yet. In many ways, he could just be fulfilling the fact that God said, like, that the, the seed of Abraham is going to bless the nations. He is, he is already, in some way, carrying God to the other nations. But they don't have a temple. The tabernacle is not around anymore, and so they're worshiping at the high places, which is, is not okay. But they, it's a, it seems to imply that they just don't have anywhere else to worship. So we'll see there's some, some weird tension going to have to be resolved here. And then at verse 3, Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So he is in some way living out David's charge to follow after God. Um, and then God appears to him at uh, Gibeon in a dream and says, ask me anything. What do you want? I'll give you anything. And uh, he, says, he says to the effect, like, I'm really young and inexperienced, and you have such a great nation. You have blessed us beyond what we could have ever imagined. I could ask for a number of things, but more than anything, I want you to give me the wisdom to rule your people well. I want you to give me a discerning heart that knows how to lead your people and rule them. And then it says in verse 10, it pleased Yahweh that Solomon asked this. And he said, you could have asked me for wealth. You could have asked me for protection from your enemies, but you asked for wisdom. And because you did that, I will not only give you wisdom to lead my people, I will also give you wealth and protection from enemies. And here we see that Solomon begins with a heart that loves and follows God. And he is blessed for it. And he gets a decadent kingdom out of it. 
Um, it is incredible to go in and read uh, as you talk, as you read of all the tribute and all the, the money coming into Solomon and see like it's conversion to modern day money. It's outrageous. He was having hundreds of thousands of pounds of gold just given to him every year. Like that's payment for being associated with him. He had a, like God blessed him in more ways than we could ever imagine. And then he, he says here in, uh, in verse 14, you see this covenantal language again. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And then Solomon wakes up. And then you have an account of his wisdom. And this is the story we all know. We have the two prostitutes. They, they, are, they sleep next to one another in the harem. And, uh, and one of, they both have a child at the same time. And one of them, the child dies in the night. And so the other lady's like, I'll just take her kid and put my kid there. And she wakes up and this is not my child. And so there's this dispute over who is the mother of this child. And they bring the baby to before Solomon. And they say, make a decision. And he's like, bring me a sword. I'm going to chop this baby in two and you each get half. And obviously the one lady who says, sure, do that. And then the other lady says, no, let her have the child. And Solomon quickly discerns which one is the true mother. And it says that the nation just marveled at the wisdom of Solomon. That was like a parlor trick, but the, the nation marveled at the wisdom of Solomon. And then there's an, an account here in chapter 4 about how he, he runs his kingdom. He rules as a truly wise king. And then chapter 4 ends in an, uh, with a picture of just how wise he was. Chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, Darda, and the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees. So he even had some uh, wisdom when it came to like natural sciences. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. He was quite incredible as a king. And early in his rule, he is the model of a godly king. Um, he's a philosopher king. He rules with wisdom. He's powerful. He's got all the coffers. Uh, he's got all the money in his coffer to support the nation and to care for his people. They are at this point still following God in a very monotheistic way. And um, it, it says that he had 3,000 Proverbs. We don't have all of them. We have many. Um, the book of Proverbs is not all written by Solomon. It is in many ways attributed to him, but the major sections that Solomon wrote are chapters 10 through the first half of 22 and chapters 25 through 29. Those are the major sections that we can, with some level of um, surety, know that Solomon wrote those. He may have wrote other parts, but he really, he, it, it's quite clear that he wrote these. And because they're, they're short, they're usually two-liners. Um, Proverbs, just some extra stuff here. Proverbs are general truths. They're not absolute truths. Um, they are 
They are intended, they are like kind of observational truths. So he wrote chapters 10 through 22 and 25 through 29. Two of my favorite chapters in Proverbs are um, Proverbs 8 and 9 on the sections on wisdom. If you read 8 and 9, just picture Jesus' face in your mind and you're reading Jesus' profile. On the, 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 it's called Lady Wisdom, Wisdom Personified, but it is a beautiful picture of Jesus in Proverbs 8 and 9, which I don't think Solomon wrote, but still worth reading. He also wrote Song of Songs, which is, the, uh, which is an account of, I believe, him with his first wife. It's a beautiful picture of like a godly romance before, well, as we'll see, it went south with Solomon. And then he, he um, likely, although this is one we're not entirely sure, likely wrote the book of Ecclesiastes more towards the end of his reign. This is one that there's lots of disagreement on. Ecclesiastes never names an author, um, but it sure seems to describe someone who lived a life like that of Solomon. Um, if you, uh, in most of our Bibles, it's rendered as the, the one speaking is named teacher, but they're translating the word koalet, which is just kind of teacher or advisor. There's many different ways to translate it. Instructor, but this is the book that vanity of vanities, or probably a better way of translating it, vapor of vapors, vanity of vanity and all those vanities um, it's like chasing after the wind, which is why vapor works probably better with chasing after the wind. Um, he's, this is the book that describes that there's nothing new under the sun. I had a professor in graduate school who used to tell us, if you think you've discovered something new, it's just because you haven't read enough. He said, it's already been talked about, and it's, especially when it comes to the Bible. If you think you've discovered something new about the Bible, it's just because you haven't read enough books. He said, someone already had that idea, and we already likely condemned it as heresy. So um, this is the book where you see that there is nothing new under the sun, and it's, I, I believe that Solomon likely wrote it, but I, I don't need to hang my hat on that truth um, either way. Um, but in these three books, you do see some of that sage wisdom being offered later in his life. Um, by the way, I think Proverbs 8 and 9 I don't want to belabor the point, but if you read um, 1 Corinthians 1, where Jesus is listed as the wisdom of God, and um, what is it, Colossians 2, 3, Colossians 2, 3, um, in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, I think there's a very strong connection between these books of wisdom that don't mention God so much. They really don't, um, by name at least, and Jesus the sage, Jesus the wise king that comes on in the New Testament. Some very interesting things to study between the two. Okay, on the back of your page, because I actually want to get done tonight. Um, the third major section of Solomon's reign is that he builds the temple. Um, I would say more than anything else, this is the climax of Solomon's rule. The temple itself, you know, um, I think that because we have um, never been a part of Judaism proper, because we are Christians with Jewish heritage, we have a tendency to downplay the value of the temple, um, where the scriptures simply don't. The scriptures don't. 
The temple was an incredibly big deal, and Solomon, it was his job to build it. David had already set aside a, quite a bit of supplies to do so, but David said, I want to build you a house, and that's the beautiful part of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, is God says, no, you can't build me a house, but I'll build you one. I will build you a house, a dynasty that will never leave the throne, and your son, the first Davidic king after you, he will build my house. David couldn't build it because he was a man of blood. He had blood on his hands. So Solomon builds the temple starting in chapter five, and this is by far the biggest chunk of his, uh, of his story in Kings and in Chronicles, and he gets help from the king of Tyre. He says, I need you to basically provide my timber to float it down. They, they kind of shipped it down um, on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. I said, we need... We need the cedars of Lebanon. You guys are great at felling these trees and shaping them. We need you to just basically just keep it coming. Don't let it stop. I'll let you know when I've had enough, and I'll pay you handsomely. Solomon begins to build the temple. It's very fascinating that when he does, if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, he pays the king of Tyre handsomely for his people. And then in chapter 5, 13, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all of Israel. And the draft numbered 30,000 men. A part of me wants to say Solomon is in some sense enslaving his own people. The other part of me wants to say, let's back it up and have a little bit of cultural understanding. If you recall when they first built the tabernacle in the wilderness, to contribute to that, to the excess, was an absolute act of devotion and worship of the nation. They gave everything they had to build this because it was that important. So part of me wants to say Solomon is, is doing something wicked to his countrymen by conscripting them into labor. Part of me wants to say, well, maybe this is an act of worship and devotion on behalf of the people. The text is unclear as to, to kind of the difference between the two. And they build this temple. Um, if you jump down to chapter 6, verse 11, you have this covenantal language again. Now the word of Yahweh came to Solomon. Concerning the house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes, this is that if-then language, very conditional language. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. Now, unlike the earlier references to the Davidic covenant, which just said, follow me and I will be with you, follow me, and you will have an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting dynasty. This one says, follow me, and you will have that everlasting dynasty, and I will dwell with you. This is why the temple matters. This is why at Sinai, you had God's presence. And then you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have God's presence. In the tabernacle, you have God's presence. They don't have that right now. He says, if you will follow me, I will dwell with you. And I, I pulled some pictures just so we can, or some drawings, I suppose I should say. There are no pictures from this far back of um, what the temple would have looked like in Solomon's day. So let me pull this up. He built an unbelievable structure. And... Uh, you can go through and read all of the dimensions. It's, it's, it was quite large, though nothing like the second temple. Um, and then all the inside was overlaid with gold. And this is what, this is a cutaway of what it would have looked like. 
So you have this tall porch with these two um, bronze columns, and the later prophets will actually, if you read uh, towards the back half of Zechariah, he'll talk about that God is going to, uh, when he comes to judge, he's going to come storming through between these two giant gold or bronze mountains. He's referring to those. Basically, that he is roused from his dwelling place. And then you have inside, you have the the main section where they would bring in the sacrifices. Again, it's all overlaid with gold on the inside. And then you have the Holy of Holies in the very back up the steps. You have the two cherubim. Their wings were touching in the middle, and then they were touching the outer walls on the outside. And underneath the middle wings was the Ark of the Covenant. This is where God's presence dwells. And we'll see here when we get to the dedication of the temple just how overwhelming his presence actually was. If you've ever wondered why when they talk about like the number of animals that they sacrifice, how you could possibly deal with that, look at how big the grill is. Look at on the right side, you have like walking up, look at that little priest in front of that gigantic altar. You could sacrifice a lot of cattle on that thing, and they did. And then you have the the purifying baths over here, the big one is called the sea, and, and there's some interesting allusions in Revelation to the sea. Um, and so you have all the instructions. You have the storehouses on the side. You see kind of the hallway on the short side um, going into the storehouses. This was the capstone of Solomon's reign, building this. And it wrecked the nation when this was torn down about 500 years later. This was, this was everything to them. This is where they finally had God dwelling among them again. So he builds the temple in chapter 6. Um, you have the covenantal language again, which promises not only the dynasty, but the presence of God himself. And then you have all the details. And then in chapter 7 of 1 Kings, you have Solomon building his own palace. And that's quite amazing. I was... Um, studying at the table while Rachel was working on something else and I was doing some calculations. I was like, look at the square footage on this palace. It's ridiculous. It's like 30,000 square feet. But um, it would have pale, in size it would have been much larger than the temple. But in decadence, nothing would have been like the temple. The temple was the crown jewel of the nation of Israel. He builds his new palace. The temple is then furnished in the back half of seven. And then in chapter eight, you have the dedication. And this is an incredible story where they, they march the ark in. Remember, um, it was after um, Eli's sons are killed for their disobedience. Remember the first, um, the, the priest while Samuel is the prophet, but this is way before they even have a king. Um, Eli's sons are killed for disobedience and they lose the ark. The Philistines capture it. David gets it back, and he brings it in, and it's kind of in a tent area in Jerusalem. They finish building the temple. They go get the ark, and they march it in. And they go set it in the Holy of Holies, and then David, um, uh, or they go set it in the Holy of Holies, and then the priests have to get out as quick as they can because the Spirit of the Lord descends, and the whole temple fills with smoke. It's this incredible picture. First Kings 8 is worth reading. It's just, I, that is one of those, definitely one of those events I would have loved to see in person. As you have all these priests just running for their life as smoke is billowing out of the temple as God's presence descends down on it. Um, and then if you jump down to chapter 8, verse 20. So Solomon is praying 
and it says, or he, he blesses the Lord first, and then in chapter eight, verse 20, now Yahweh has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David. This is Solomon talking. I've risen in the place of David. He's saying the Davidic covenant has taken, it is taking root, and I sit on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised. And I have built the house or the temple for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of Yahweh that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. You have here an incredible picture of God's faithfulness to bring about everything that he promised he would do. And then Solomon prays, jump down to verse 25. Now therefore, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close, pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. God would have never forgotten his covenant, but I love throughout the Old Testament, you'll see these sections where these men of God remind God of his covenant. Remember your promise to us. And to this point, God has definitely done exactly that. And then in chapter 9, God appears to him a second time. Well, another covenantal reminder is at the end of chapter 8. Blessed, so this is chapter 8, verse 30, 56. Blessed be Yahweh who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of his, all his good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Yahweh our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways, to keep the commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. This is Solomon speaking to the nation saying, God has lived up to his end of the bargain. We must live up to ours. We must follow him. And then in chapter nine, God appears again and reaffirms his covenant with Solomon himself. And then there's all these other actions and you kind of can read a bit of the story of the rest of his reign. And then in chapter 10, you'll see that things are gonna turn soon for the worst. Um, chapter 10, well, some things we learned from the temple, from Roman numeral number three. Um, this completes the promise to Abraham that he would give him a land of his own. The temple, more than anything, symbolized permanence in the land. They are no longer a nomadic tribe with a nomadic worship space. They have a permanent space. So the Abrahamic promise is coming true. This, this section, the, the temple being built, illustrates the promise between Israel's faithfulness and God's faithfulness. And it reminds us of the importance of worship. The kings are often, um, the, one of the reasons they are punished, one of the most prominent reasons they're punished, is for their own failure to worship God as he instructs and for their ability to lead other people to worship him in inappropriate ways and to worship other gods altogether. It can be an offensive thing to say that there are rules for how one worships, but the Bible is a big testimony to the fact that that's true. There are specific ways to worship, and the temple shows us some of those things. Okay, in chapter 10, um, we have the Queen of Sheba, another famous story with King Solomon. This queen, probably the queen of the Sabbateans, um, she... Uh, 
she hears of his wisdom and comes in to investigate, and she has these long conversations, and he just answers everything she could possibly want to know, demonstrates how wise he is. And she says, uh, it actually says something to the effect of, after he answered all of her questions, like she was left breathless, speechless. She was in awe of this king. And she starts to pay all kinds of tribute to Solomon. And he, in turn, gives her all these gifts. It's this incredible picture, demonstration of God-given wisdom. And then in the back half of chapter 10, you see descriptions of his great wealth and how um, lavish the kingdom of Solomon was. And then in chapter 11, the, the other shoe drops. Here's where Solomon does one of the things that he was never supposed to do. In chapter 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. <laughs> and in spite of that warning, Solomon clung to these in love, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And then just as God said would happen, verse four, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Every king will be compared to David. Some will live up to it, most won't. And those who don't will be punished. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, you marry foreign women who worship foreign gods. Couple that with the fact that Solomon never did what he was supposed to by tearing down the high places. And you have this. He went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There we have the first of a very long refrain that will run throughout the book. So, fill in the blank, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Solomon is setting a terrible standard that we will see play out through the rest of Israel's history. He did not wholly follow Yahweh as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and, and, and sacrifice to their gods. Solomon does this, and um, if we jump back to chapter 9, you see God say what would happen if this happened. So thus far, God has basically said, you follow me, and you'll have a dynasty. You follow me, and you'll have my presence. Back in chapter 9, he affirms the covenant, and then he foretells the destruction that will come should the covenant be broken. Chapter 9, verse 4, God says this. If you will walk before me as David your father did, again, the standard, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Verse six, but if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them. 
we have two exiles that are going to take place in about three and 500 years. God said that would happen if what Solomon, if, if this takes place. I'm going to cut off Israel from the land I gave them. More than that. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, that temple, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. In 586 BC, Babylon came in and just tore the thing down to pieces. He told Solomon what would happen. Two chapters later, he's got a thousand women and, they, and he is chasing after their gods. This is a, an incredible picture of what God will do. Um, and, what he, and, and when he's faithful to his word, he raises up enemies against Solomon. He raises up two um, outside enemies, two uh, foreign enemies against him. And he raises up actually another Israelite against him. His name, Solomon, the, the, the rightful heir to the throne is a man named Rehoboam, and he will take the throne. But God raises up a man named Jeroboam and sends a prophet to him and tells him, I'm going to tear this, this kingdom apart. He takes a cloak and tears it into 10 pieces, gives, or 12 pieces, gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam and says, like, I'm going to make you a king. And this is, this is what's so fascinating and complicated and disturbing about God himself. He, he says this to Jeroboam. Um, if you will listen to all that I can, tell me if this sounds familiar. If you, Jeroboam, will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David, my servant, did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. That's what the 10 northern tribes eventually became known as Israel. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. He he tells Jeroboam, basically, like, you can have the same deal. The Davidic covenant is still special for David's line. But if you follow me, like, I will provide for you, and I will lead you. I will be your God. I will be with you. Now, Jeroboam doesn't do that. He goes and sets up two golden calves, first day on the job. So it doesn't go well for him. Um, but... It's amazing how even as he rips the kingdom out of Solomon's hands and as he splits the nation in half, God is still gracious and says, if you will follow me, it will go well for you. Now, in Solomon's case, it doesn't. Um, that's why I called the, the section earlier the, uh, the tragedy of Israel. Because if 1 Kings starts here, 1 Kings 1, um, it looks pretty good for a time. He's getting wisdom. He's got a really lavish temple. And then he marries all these women. And then there's the decline. By the time we get to 1 Kings 11, Solomon is being chased around by enemies. God is no longer protecting him. And he's going to tear the nation in two. There's going to be a 50-year civil war. And Solomon's bloodline is going to actually dry up. They're going to be murdered out. So you have the classic plot line of a, tra of a tragedy. Looks good at first, ends in complete demise. Now, I, I only draw that because it's helpful for us to see this in the scope of all of Scripture itself. Very last point on your notes. Yahweh's kingdom is the comedy of restoration. The comedic plot line is this. Genesis 1, it goes south right away. 
that at some point we see restoration taking place, redemption taking place. So this is, this is a comedy. Starts out okay, gets real bad, and then ends well. So we can look at the story of Solomon and just, it looks bleak. And you can realize how a guy that lived like this and has a life like this would write a book like Ecclesiastes. But in the overall scope of things, whether you put Solomon's story here or here or wherever, like we can, we can navigate through all of scripture and see that like all of this is a small sliver of God's overarching redemptive plan. And I put two ways that you could even read that redemptive plan, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or a way I'm starting to like more and more, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, which kind of shows the players that are involved in that plot line. Um, the overarching story of Solomon just affirms um, 2 Timothy 2.13. When we are faithless, he is faithful. Solomon was anything but faithful to God in the end, and God was faithful to him. Just uh, Jim's going to come up here for a second and share something, but just so you guys can kind of see how this played itself out, this temple got torn down, and then King Herod came in and built a newer, bigger, better one. Massive compared to the first one. This is the temple complex itself. Um, I'll go back to this one. You see the, the tall part of the temple where like the actual sanctuary was? Um, the entire original temple complex would have been smaller than that inner temple. And you have the court of the Gentiles and the court of women. Um, in the, uh, the Feast of Booths, those four giant pillars, they would light, oddly enough, the, um, the loincloths of priests on fire. And that would light the city up. Weird detail, but that's what they would do. And then you have the whole temple complex here. Um, this temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And then Jim's going to come up right now and talk to you about, this is what it looks like now. Not quite as holy as it once was, as you can tell from the Islamic structure in the middle. But uh, <laughs> this is Israel now. This is the Temple Mount today. So 